Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And then I wandered off unsupervised with a spreadsheet one summer and I asked myself a question, but how well are my clients doing, my landlords? What's their investment performance on these properties? I didn't buy them for them. I didn't sell them to them. I don't have a dog in the fight. I'm just managing them, but they don't look like great properties to me. This is Property Investory, where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset, and strategies. I'm Tyrone Sharp, and in this episode, we're talking with Longview Executive Chair Evan Thornley. As a property investor in Australia for over three decades, he poses the principle of the 1% of 100. Plus, he reveals how home buyers can make better returns on their property investment without the hassle that comes with being a landlord. From Silicon Valley to Australia's real estate industry, Thornley has always had a good sense of where he wants to make a positive and lasting impact. With impressive bona fide experience in both tech and property investing in the last 30 years, he talks about his work within the real estate firm and how he helps his clients better manage their properties. He begins by sharing his background that ultimately paved the way of his property journey. I grew up in a single parent family on welfare so I've had to kind of make my own way in the world. Uh, and for better or worse, I managed to do that and got a law degree from the University of Melbourne and then decided I didn't want to be a lawyer. So I went to be a management consultant at McKinsey and Company, which uh, is one of the great business finishing schools of the world. Um, but then I became a tech entrepreneur. So I uh, left McKinsey in 1995 in the early, early days of the internet, just after Netscape had um, gone public. Um, and we decided that in a world of infam- infinite information, the power position would be search. And so we built an internet search business that ended up pioneering internet search advertising and particularly what you now see in things like Google Words. Um, that whole business model was pioneered by my company, LookSmart, and another company called GoTo.com. And so uh, we were the first Australian tech company uh, listed on NASDAQ, uh, took it to uh, $14 billion in market cap. Uh, which was proper money in those days. Yeah, it's a lot of money. <laughs> uh, backlisted onto the Australian Stock Exchange and uh, and then went through the crash, the dot-com crash, and then came out the other side and got the business back to profitability. And Anyway, so that's a bit of my background. So I, I ended up, I'm a recovering lawyer who's a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. I'm Jewish and in, 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 the, in the Jewish community, a lot of people started out in what's called schmutters, in the rag trade, in, in fashion, and then end up in property, right? The, the fashion shop ends up paying for the building, then you buy another building, then suddenly you find out it's actually the property. And so now we start out in tech. 
uh, and end up in property. I think that's the way, way of the trend. <laughs> there are various ways of creating wealth and then there's various ways of wanting to preserve and, and manage that wealth. And so like, like most of your audience, you know, I saw property, residential property as a safe and hopefully over time uh, attractive investment class, much safer and less volatile than equities um, or, you know, crypto or all that other stuff. Totally. You know, safety first and then and then work on how we can get better returns. So, so I just drifted into property and I couldn't believe how badly property investors were treated by the real estate industry, by the developers, by everybody, actually. <laughs> how did that happen? You explained to me that there was, you know, this scenario where you came from the States and came back to Australia and go, oh, wow, you know, I want to buy property because that's where, you know, most of the wealthy people hold their funds. But the experience was really appalling. Let's talk a little bit about that story first. Well, you know, most people outside the real estate industry don't understand the real estate industry, right? So I'd, I'd go and start looking at properties and then, you know, agents wouldn't return my calls. And, you know, you'll forgive my ego. I'm a little bit, don't you know who I am, right? And they, they'd always throw in a question, oh, and have you got a property to sell? You know, and I go, oh, no, because I just came back from the US. And then you'd never hear from them again, right? Because I didn't understand that sales agents are about getting the listing. It's the only thing they care about. The property sells itself. So, you know, you can walk in, as I literally did, with tens of millions of dollars to invest and no one would return your calls. So this was unusual to me because in other asset classes... Oh, they'll be, they'll be running after you and saying, Evan... The folks at the, at the Goldman Ultra High Net Worth Desk, they return my calls, you know, but the local real estate agent, not so much. So I'm like, hang on, this is really weird. Um, and, and, you know, just talking to friends who were, you know, often small-scale property investors and landlords. And, you know, as one of my friends said, I, I've never met a happy landlord. And so my business partner, uh, Anthony Cohen and I, Anthony was a senior guy at KPMG for 28 years on the board, you know, founded and ran the corporate finance practice and the energy and resources practice. We both said, well, why is that? And then we found out how the real estate industry works and found out that all the property management was really owned by real estate salespeople and, you know, they didn't care about property management. So we said, well, let's, let's, let's start by doing that properly. So we founded the company. Um, to start just trying to make sure that property investors could be looked after and that and we called it long view because property is a long game and so that was eight years ago um and we, we now manage four thousand properties for clients uh up and down the east coast and um you know i'd like to think we do a good job we just got voted best large property manager in the country um we just got voted actually by the real estate industry in Victoria, the best residential agency in Victoria, which I thought was pretty good for someone who doesn't sell houses. <laughs> it's no small fee to get that many property listings. Most of, most people usually or most agencies have an average about probably max thousands, you know, depending on the size. We do that well. But over after, and it took a long time and a lot of hard work to learn to, it, it was much harder than it looked. Anything like that is, yes. And I'll be honest, as you can probably detect from my conversation, we're a little bit arrogant about it. I'm like, how hard can this be? You know, I've done all this fancy stuff in Silicon Valley. Uh, you know, it turns out it's really hard to do well and to build a team and to deal with the practical problems of, you know, of thousands of different, every home is different. But we, we did start doing it well. And then I wandered off unsupervised with a spreadsheet one summer and I asked myself a question, but how well are my clients doing, my landlords? What's their investment performance on these properties? I didn't buy them for them. I didn't sell them to them. I don't have a dog in the fight. I'm just managing them. But they don't look like great properties to me. And lo and behold, I discovered that our landlords, which are given the, sc the scale of our client base now, a pretty representative sample of Australia's landlords, were getting 
2.8% per annum, 280 basis points below housing market average in terms of their capital growth, right? And, and as we know, you know, every property market's a trade-off between capital growth and yield. Australia, more than almost any other country in the world, is a capital growth market. So you're not in this for yield, right? <laughs> if you want to be in it for yield, go to the Sunbelt of the US and get 8 to 10% gross yields. You won't get that in Australia or, or you know, very remote regional Australia, maybe. Yeah, other places. So if, if you are 280 bips below average in capital growth, so I looked at it and I went, well, these nice people are paying us 10 or $11 million a year to do really an outstanding job of managing their property. But their opportunity cost on these properties that we're managing for them is $100 million a year of lost capital growth just to housing market average, let alone if they could have had access to top quartile or top decile assets, they probably would have been several hundred million dollars a year better off, this same group of clients. So we're like, hey, there's no point in helping people manage properties well if you don't help them buy the right assets. That the buying well is 10 times more important. It's the most important thing is, is asset selection. So then we, 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 we started bringing a bunch of, you know, senior veteran buying advisors onto our team, people that have bought a thousand homes each, you know, over the last 20 years and obviously do, you know, really good work and really know their stuff. But then we backed them up with a team of data scientists. And so we analysed every sale price of every property in Australia for 50 years to start answering the question, what drives good capital growth at a really detailed level? And so if you combine, you know, really deep, what I call field experience, people who literally bought a thousand homes, they must have looked at a hundred thousand, right? Um, with data science, then you can start getting pretty good at working out which properties to buy to generate the best capital growth. And so that's what we did for the next few years. And once we felt we did that well, we know how to buy well, we know how to manage well. Then we came back to where we actually originally started, which was Anthony and I couldn't understand one simple thing as people from the big end of town. Why is the single biggest asset class in this country and on a risk adjusted basis, almost unarguably the best asset class in the country, certainly not the worst, strong, <coughs> strong performance and very low volatility. Why is there not a single investment grade fund to invest in this asset class? Why is it the only way you can invest in this asset class is one by one by one buying individual properties, right? There's more crypto funds in Australia than there are residential property funds. Yeah, it's a good question. And you know, you know why? It's hard. <laughs> you told me it's hard work. <laughs> exactly, right? If you, so I went and talked to all the fund managers and they said, yeah, we wanted to do that. And then we're like, how are we going to manage thousands of properties and fix the dunnies and the and the, oh my god, we can't do that. I'm I'm sitting in a in a you know in a fancy office in Pitt Street or Collins Street, you know, as a screen jockey. And then I go and talk to my Silicon Valley mates, all the prop techs and fintechs, and they're like, oh, we can do all this from a beanbag in Surrey Hills. And I'm like, really? I, I suspect it can't actually. And so you know, I went out to do that and, you know, that ended badly, right? <laughs> because you've got to, and, and so if you look at the major um, residential property funds in other parts of the world, it's a huge industry that what I call the housing fund industry. You know, I was talking to the CEO of the biggest uh, housing fund in the US. They've got 100,000 single family homes. Yep. They bought the first 59,000 of them one by one. Yes. They've got $100 billion under management. Yeah, it's very common over the States. And that's only a 15-year-old company, right? And they've got $100 billion under management, right? So this grew very quickly. Yes. 
And no kidding, they have strong field operations. You need people out on the ground. That's right. You know, looking at each individual home, working with the person who lives in that home, whether they're an owner-occupier or a renter, depending on the, the business structure. Right, there's just no easy way. So you've got to be good, you know, at the financial engineering. You've got to be good at the data science. You've got to be good at managing a whole lot of legal and compliance and other important issues. But you've also got to be good at field operations house by house. Yeah. And so that's a hard thing to do well. And so it became clear to us that that was really why no one had set up a resi property fund in Australia. Yeah. And it kind of makes sense. The reason why we can see that is because typically all the fund managers lean towards commercial. And with commercial, they're usually looking at the larger assets, which is lower maintenance. Usually the tenants look after. Yeah. I shouldn't say easy. It's not easy at all, but it's it's manageable is probably a better way of saying it. Okay. You know, I bought five regional shopping centres and I got them at a good cap rate and then, you know, yada, yada, did a bit of reno and I, okay, fine, then that's fine. But yeah, house by house, that looks hard. It is. <laughs> so for a fund manager, that looks hard. But when I turn it around, you know, we're having a bunch of dinners with our clients now, our landlords, right? And just talking to them and, and I asked them a couple of really interesting questions. Um, so the first question I said to them was, Imagine a world where you could choose, would you rather own 100% of one property or 1% of 100 properties? And most of them sort of think about it and they go, oh, that's really interesting. Probably 1% of 100 properties, I guess, you know, and the, the sort of, you know, some folks will use fancy words like diversification. Others will just go, probably good to not have all my eggs in one basket, but everyone intuitively understands that all other things being equal, you would prefer that from a sort of financial risk point of view. Of course. Depending on what type of properties they were. Um, and then I say to them, let me ask you another question. Which have you got the better investment performance from? Your family home as a property or the property you bought as a property investment? And they sort of they sort of wriggle a bit in their seats and in eight and a half cases out of 10, they come back and go, actually, our family home has been a much better investment. Yep, yep, very true. And I'm like, and that's before tax, right? Because that's an untaxed investment and it's outperforming by a mile even before you get to the fact that it's untaxed versus all the, you know, I live in the People's Republic of Victoria, right? The uh, land taxes keep going up. Not only that, you get to enjoy the home as well too. So that's a huge benefit. <laughs> so we're sort of going, okay, so if you could invest in quality family homes, wouldn't you rather invest in that than in kind of crappy investment properties and, you know, crappy new build off the plan, high rise apartments and stuff? And they're like, sure. <laughs> but, you know, I, I don't have a lazy 1.8 million or 2 million bucks. So I'm like, okay, but if there was a fund that bought a lot of them, then you could just own a chunk of the fund. That's right. Yep. And so people are going, okay, that sounds great. How would it work when you say it's a family home? And and so so that was our, our thinking was how do we help our landlords do the thing that they do for the reason they do it. They invest in property because first and foremost, it is safe. They understand it. They understand how it works. They know they're not going to wake up one morning like they can with a share portfolio and find out it's dropped 40% or 60% in value as the share market does every 10 or 15 years. Yep. And it happened pretty much during COVID. Everyone saw that happen. Whereas property stabilized pretty quickly. And what happened to property? Just glided through. Right. Yeah. 
It actually made, did even better. <laughs> I was like, why didn't we all buy before COVID? A whole bunch of the fancy pants people in the Fin Review said, oh, when interest rates rise, property's going to crash. And we, we sent out a note to our clients saying, mm, no, it's not. <laughs> um, here's a graph of interest rates and property prices for the last 60 years. And interest rates are doing this and property prices are doing that. I'm just saying, mate, that's just facts, right? <laughs> so, so that's not going to happen. And um, the, the world conducted a perfect uh, live experiment. We had a much bigger rise in interest rates than anyone predicted and a much smaller drop in price, property prices than anyone predicted. And as we know, it's now pretty much recovered even from that modest correction. That's right. And so this is why we decided to put out some white papers to explain actually how residential property in this country really works. And so the first, and we did it jointly with PEXA, okay, the big electronic conveyancing giant, right? They've got more property data than anyone else because they conduct all the conveyancing. Correct. So we, we and PEXA analysed all the data and we said, look, sure, interest rates impact property prices a little bit, um, negative gearing policies and all the stuff that politicians get excited about has a little bit of impact. The amount of foreign investment has a little bit of impact. Supply side constraints, which is the topic of the day, they have some impact. All of those things have some impact. Yep. They just have one to two orders of magnitude less impact than something else. And in Australia, that's something else, which is an easily verifiable fact. You can get it on Google in 15 seconds, but most people don't know this. We have the second highest population growth rate in the world. Wow. Okay. Right? That I didn't know. Trust me, this is an easily verifiable fact. <laughs> okay. Outside sub-Saharan Africa and some of those very uh, less developed countries, but compared with all of Europe, all of North America, all of North Asia, right, China, India, everyone, Australia has the second highest population growth rate in the world. Actually, the only country with a high population growth rate over the medium term is Israel. Oh, okay. Why, Why do you think that's the case? That's well, you know, we are, my friend, an immigrant nation. Yeah. And we have been since our inception, right? But there's, a, there's another fact that most people take for granted, but when you compare it to the rest of the world that people don't realise. In this wide brown land, for some bizarre set of historical reasons, we cram our population into a tiny number of places, right? We have the highest level of population concentration in the developed world. I mean, outside, say, Singapore or Monaco or a few other city-states, right, more than 50% of our population's in just three urban centres, Sydney, Melbourne and South East Queensland. And that percentage is actually growing, despite governments for 50 years trying to get people to move out. We keep doing the opposite, right? It used to be 47%, it's now 52 The Bureau of Statistics says it'll be 57% shortly. So, okay, well, what does that mean? If you have the second highest population growth rate in the world, and the highest level of urban concentration in the world, what that means is that well-located suburban land is a scarce. Coming up after the break, Thorny explains why buying the right type of asset can make or break a property investor's returns in the long run. And people get tricked into buying those assets and that's why they're not making money in their property investment. He unveils the truth on how home buyers and homeowners can make better return rates. So like I said, when, when we talk this through with our landlords, the main question is, hang on a minute, this sounds too good to be true. Yeah. Um, 
But that's that's how it works. He lays down the compelling evidence in time-tested and proven data that show how shared equity can be a game changer for property investors. Well, so the returns in this will be higher because the home buyers are making money on the bank's money, whereas the older homeowners all own their homes outright. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Sham, and you're listening to Property Investory. Continue on the astounding fact that Australia has the second highest population growth rate in the world, Thonley dives deeper into the implications of this reality on the country's property investing space. He underscores how the value of the land comes into play in driving house prices in a predominantly capital growth orientated market. Okay, so, so let's understand what drives Australian house prices. If you have the second highest population growth rate in the world, and you cram that population principally into just three cities, then that means that well-located suburban land is a scarce commodity. And so the land underneath the homes in Australia's three major cities has been growing 9% compound for 100 years. That is phenomenal. (laughs) Right? The value of the land underneath the homes has been growing, has been doubling every eight years for a hundred years. So that's what our first white paper with PEXA said. Everyone has all these theories about what drives Australian house prices, but what drives Australian house prices is the value of the land underneath them. And that is because of the unique population growth and population concentration that Australia uniquely in the world has. If you understand that, that was white paper too. That's how you understand why this is a massively capital growth oriented market, not a rental yield market because the land is scarce. And as our population keeps growing, we keep putting more and more people on the same amount of land, the value of the land goes up. And so once you understand that, then you understand why quality family homes outperform, for example, high-rise investment apartments. Massively outperform them. Because in your average quality suburban family home in a good location, 70 or 80% of the purchase price of that home is actually the value of the land underneath it. Yeah, because everyone wants that great Australian dream. They want to live, you know, with a backyard. They want a big house. They want to be close to transport and amenity and yada, yada, right? And that's what drives Australian house prices. And, you know, in simple terms, land appreciates in value, buildings depreciate in value. Yes. So the more of your money that's buying the land underneath the home, the better the investment. And ironically... When people buy a quality family home, they're typically buying a home. They're often period homes or they're, you know, the, the building has depreciated and the land has is what they're paying for, is the location. So all this is all this stats has come from PEXA and the combination of all your data analytics? I'll give you the reverse. I can give you the names and addresses of every property in Australia that has ever been sold at a loss. Okay. I can give every single one of them. Okay. Let me tell you something about those addresses. The vast majority of them have a slash in the middle of the address and two to four digits before the slash. That's pretty obvious then. <laughs> For the listeners out there who don't know, it's units. We're referring to apartments or anything, high rises, yeah. I'm not talking about a block of four art decos in Bondi. They're doing great, right? Because the value of the land underneath them is has gone forever for for a hundred years, right? So, but yeah, high rise new build apartments, the building's depreciating, you've got hardly any share of the land. And so they go nowhere, right? In fact, often go backwards. So now that we understand that, 
That's when we wrote the second white paper that said, so what's wrong with the rental market in Australia? Here's all the things that make it a bad place to be a renter. And, and everyone knows those things. But the assumption is, therefore, it's a fantastic country to be a landlord. No. If you actually analyse the investment returns of all of Australia's landlords, they vary widely depending on whether they bought good assets or not and a couple of other factors and how they finance themselves. But on average, the landlords of Australia have been getting a 6% return on their money. That's media. <laughs> which is less than if they'd put it in a balanced super account. That's right. It's very, very mediocre. And they've had to have all of the hassles that we all know about being a landlord with their interest rate risk, their land tax, you know, the challenge you have with maintenance and with the building and sometimes with, with tenant issues. You know, it's not easy being a landlord. And, and yet the average return is actually pretty poor. And so we analyse why that was and the answer is mainly they bought the wrong assets. Right, And they got tricked by real estate salespeople and property developers who tricked them into buying all these investment grade as per se kind of. Uh, that phrase, uh, it, 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 sorry, I'll, I'll lose my temper in a minute. In the world I come from, when you talk about something being investment grade, that means that it's better than everything else. right? In institutional investment, to say something's investment grade means it's super high quality. And in, in the property development industry, it means it's rubbish quality. Right, it's, and, and, and not only is it not, as an asset, it is not investment grade, it's a rubbish investment that makes really poor, if any, capital growth and not that much better in yield once you take into account all the body corporate and other fees. Um, and, and there are, in many cases, poor dwellings for people to live in. So, um, so, and people get tricked into buying those assets and that's why they're not making money in their property investment. And they come to us all the time and say, oh, I thought my property would have gone up now. I thought the market's gone up and we have to say the market has gone up, but not for you, right, because the asset you bought is not the right type of asset. So that's when we said, okay, how do we help the landlords of Australia who want to invest in property because it's safe and because they know from their own experience in their family home that it can go up in value over time quite a lot, how do we help them just get more of that thing which they already have, which is what they've had in their family home? And the answer is, well, let's invest in quality family homes that the principal driver of their value is the land underneath the home. Makes sense. And then that's when we said to our clients, would you rather own 100% of one property or 1% of 100 properties? And they quite rightly said, well, it depends what those properties are. And then when I said, well, what if they're quality family homes in the sort of 800,000 to 3 million range? And then they went, well, yeah, sure, that'd be great. I'd love to invest in those. I don't have that sort of money, right? And I'm like, right, but that's where the 1% of 100 comes in. So let's put a fund together, which we're calling the Homes Investment Fund, which invests in quality family homes, which are therefore going to generate good returns and going to be diversified across Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane uh, in, in, in different quality locations, in price ranges from 800,000 to 3 million. So you're getting a good broad swathe of quality family homes. It's kind of an index fund for, for quality family homes. Yeah, and that makes absolute sense. The challenge, as we kind of discussed about early on in the podcast, is it's quite hard work, you know, to manage all that those many homes. I mean, I don't know how many homes you're planning to put into this fund, but, you know, how do you actually go about managing that many? So that's where it gets interesting. So again, thankfully, as we've recently been voted the best large property manager in the country for the 4,000 homes we already manage. Okay, so we're already managing 4,000 homes 
that that are not in a fund. They're owned by individual landlords, but those individual landlords have put about four and a half billion dollars into those assets, right? So we're already managing four and a half billion dollars worth of assets, just managing the assets, not the money. So in a fund, we'll manage the money and then buy the assets and make sure we buy the right assets. So it's it's actually not that much of a change from what we already do, and and I'm gratified to say our peers in the industry have have recognised we do exceptionally well. Um, but so that's that's the basis of the homes investment fund. But then you say, but and and we'll come back to how do you manage those homes in a tick. Then you come back to okay, but if you're buying quality family homes, you're renting all of them out, and we're like, actually no. Um, there's a better way. There's a better way of investing in those family homes, and that's to invest alongside the families who live in them and own them. Ah, oh, I get where you're going. And if we're co-investing with those families and we do that in the right structure, they're not paying land tax, which means we're not paying land tax. Okay. Yes. So now you're investing in quality family homes whose value is driven by the value of the land underneath them, but you're not paying land tax. I want that. Okay. So how does that work? Well, that works, interestingly, by solving another one of the massive housing crises in this country, which is um, if you don't have the bank of mum and dad, it's incredibly hard for younger families and, and many other families, by the way, to be able to get the deposit they need to be able to buy the home in the first place, right? So we just, we're about to release our latest research, which shows that there is a new financial institution that has just taken over from the Commonwealth Bank as the single biggest financier of first homes, first home buyers. And that new financial institution is called the Bank of Mum and Dad. Oh, I thought there was going to be something very different. <laughs> yeah. Which is fine. I mean, Macquarie's nipping at people's heels. So the Macquarie's number three in the big four, except they're the fifth. Um, and so the ANZ's now the fifth in the big four, which is probably not a good place to be. But, um, but actually, but the big five are actually smaller than BOMAD which is bigger than them all, in first-home buyers. It's third biggest overall in all of housing, biggest in first-home buyers, right? But there's a third of a generation that don't have the bank of mum and dad. You know, many of them, they're migrants or children of migrants. They're sole parents or the children of sole parents in many cases. They're children of renters. So you have a country where increasingly home ownership is an inherited privilege. Um, and that's not a society that any of us want to live in. Um and so what we're doing is we're co-investing alongside those home buyers who don't have a bank of mum and dad and, and our homes investment fund becomes the bank of mum and dad for them, right? And, and so in simple terms, let's imagine um, you're trying to buy a million-dollar home, often more than that. You don't get much in somewhere like Sydney for a million bucks these days, right? Um, you need 200000 for the deposit. And the bank will give you eight hundred thousand for your mortgage. Okay, getting the two hundred thousand is hard, and then you need fifty five for stamps. You need the best part of a quarter of a million to buy a million dollar home. Well, we know how hard it is to save a quarter of a million dollars after tax. You know, it takes people decades, and by the time they do it, the value of the house has gone up. But and so people are you know these are hard saving, hard working people because they know there's no bank of mum and dad to help them. They're going to have to do it all themselves. So let's imagine they've got two thirds of the way there. Okay, well, we then, the fund then gives them the last one third and gets them in and helps them. Then our buyers, advisors, and our data science help them choose the right home that's going to be a good fit for them and their families 
you know, young home buyers can't see around corners. They often buy the home that feels good today, but two or three years from now, it's not the right. So, you know, our, our buying advisors who bought a thousand homes, you know, know all those stories. So help them buy the family home that's going to be the right home for them and their family's needs, but also one that's going to be a really good investment for them. And so we help them buy the right home. We give them a portion of the deposit, usually not more than a third. And then in exchange for that help buying the right home and the money to get in it, they give us the same proportion as a share of the capital growth in the home when it grows. So if if the fund puts in a third of the deposit, the homeowner gives a third of the capital growth of the upside in the home over time back to the fund. That's a win-win situation. It's a total win-win, right? And so... The, the investors will only ever make $1 if the homeowner makes two. The homeowner pays the mortgage because they were going to be paying their mortgage anyway. Anyway, yep. They get to live in a better home sooner. They look after the home because it's their home. Um, and But they're not paying land tax. So the fund is not paying land tax. And the bank will lend them a higher proportion of the value of that home than it would have lent us on the exact same home if we bought it as a mum and dad property investor. So the leverage off the bank's money is greater for homeowners than it is for property investors. So, so let's imagine this situation. We've all been there. We're at a suburban auction for a quality family home in a good location. And mum and dad are thinking, oh, we might buy this as an investment. And, you know, this is a good home. It's going to double in value in 10 years. It's going to do 7% compound, double in value in 10 years. And the bank will give us maybe 65%. You know, as, as an investor, maybe 65% LBR, right? 3X gearing. And then we're going to have a lot of land tax and a lot of interest and a lot of other things. It'll be costing us money to hold the property. We might get some of that offset with negative gearing, but it's negative cash flow for a period of time. And then we sell it at the end for double what we paid for it. If you do the math on that, that mum and dad investor will make about 9% on their money over the 10 years, which actually means they've done better than two-thirds of landlords. Definitely. That's not bad. But on the exact same home, if they turned to the kiddies next to them and said, hang on a minute, why don't we not buy it and rent it to you? Why don't we help you buy it for your family home? Then the kiddies next door buy it as their family home. They get 80% from the bank. So they're on 5X gearing. They're covering the cost of the home because they were going to cover those costs anyway. So there's no holding costs and there's no land tax. And then it sells for double. And so the homeowner is making a much better rate of return on the exact same asset than you would have as an investor. And if you've helped them become the owner, then you participate in their returns. Makes absolute sense. Right. So on the literally the exact same home, because you're doing it in what's called shared equity with the home buyer, you're actually going to make a better return on the exact same asset and do some good. Help these kiddies get into a better home quicker or get a home at all um, and not have any of the hassles of being a landlord. So... So like I said, when, when we talk this through with our landlords, the main question is, hang on a minute, this sounds too good to be true. Um, but that's that's how it works. So we're trying to solve a really profound social problem. You, you know, I, I grew up in a single parent family on welfare. I'm not going to get the bank of mum and dad. That's not going to happen for me, right? And and for thousands and, and many, particularly migrants and children of migrants, um, children who've grown up in, you know, if you choose your parents badly in this country and they don't happen to be homeowners, then you know, then it's tough for you. So solves a really important social problem, but actually delivers a better investment return with no holding costs and no landlord hassles um, while doing some social good. So that's what 
our homes investment fund, or, or it's technically called the shared equity fund because it's a co-investment with the homeowner. Yeah. That's how we invest in quality family homes. And the question I've got for you, Evan, is how would you guys extract the equity or the profits? Because until they sell, they're going to be holding on to these homes for seven to 10 years. There's a couple of questions people ask, and that's the most common and obviously good question. So this is where the 1% of 100 thing comes in, or in this case, our first fund, uh, which will be about $30 million, means we'll be helping 200 families buy a home. So we'll we'll be helping buy 200 homes across Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane in the 800,000 to 3 million range. So what we know from 100 years of data is that, and every suburban real estate agent knows this, right? For whatever reason, a certain proportion of people sell in year one, a certain proportion sell in year two, a certain proportion sell in year three. Just that's how life works. It's how it's always worked. It's how it always will work. And so what happens is every year a proportion of those homeowners for whatever reason you know their kids change school they have a they have twins and suddenly it doesn't work for them sadly they get divorced they get a promotion to you know all sorts of reasons people sell their homes so you can pretty statistically rely on once you've got a portfolio of a couple of hundred that a certain proportion are going to turn over every year and so then the capital and the capital growth from those contracts is returned to the investors so it ends off actually throwing off a lot of cash yeah i can imagine each year after, you know, we, 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 we think if there's any in the first year or two, we'll reinvest that money. But after year two, then all of that money then just gets returned to the, 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 the shareholder, the unit holders in the, in the fund. And so, you know, on our modelling, we think that probably means they'll be getting roughly 15% money on money returns from year three onwards. Wow, that's a phenomenal return. I mean, like... Right, so... Um, and rising to into the 20s, most likely, uh, in the later years. So the fund itself is a 10-year fund. And so at the end of 10 years, about two-thirds of those homes will either have been sold or the home buyer can buy out the fund. They can buy back their capital growth, which, which many of them will do as their equity goes up, as their incomes go up, maybe interest rates come down. It makes sense for them to buy back that third of their capital growth. And so you just do that at the market value as if the home was sold, even though it wasn't. So we think about two-thirds of the home's will the money will be back in that 10-year period and then that last remaining tail of the portfolio then either gets rolled into a new fund or sold to an institutional investor and the last proportion of the money comes back to the investors in year 10. That makes absolute sense, yeah. So I guess... So it's like owning a property but you're sort of harvesting the capital growth on that property because it's not one property, it's 200 every year and starting to capture that capital growth. So it feels like income right? Actually, much stronger cash flows than you would get in any sort of yield product. Um, but it's actually, what I say, harvesting capital growth piece by piece along the way. And we anticipate like, you know, if this happens, and I guess it's very hard to say that, you know, majority of the people decide, oh, you know, it's done so well, I want to actually buy my property back or buy my share back and I want to own the home. Then would you be t- planning to take those funds and reinvest and buy more and more properties until you... Yeah. Yeah, well, so the first fund, the first fund is a closed-ended fund, so people can have certainty it's it's a maximum ten-year investment, and they'll get those sort of returns. I think when we launch the next fund, it'll probably be what's called an evergreen fund, where it just keeps recycling. And 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 what will make that easier is, um, and we're setting this up at the moment. This is not in place yet, but it will be shortly. Um, new investors can also just buy out old investors if somebody needs to sell their shares in the fund for whatever reason. 
in, then if a new investor comes in and can buy those shares in the fund, then the new investor comes in and keeps going, the old investor can take their money out without anyone having to sell any homes, right? So we just, we revalue the, the auditors, you know, check all this, we revalue the portfolio every quarter. And so we know what the net asset value of the portfolio is. And so people can buy or sell their shares in, in the fund separate from um, the homes themselves. Yeah, so it's pretty much like almost trading shares in between a, a, a fund, I guess you can say. You, you know, if you're buying some shares inside a, a company and then you decide to sell it down the track, you can pretty much sell it. Yeah, that's right. Now, in a company listed on the stock exchange, that's easy. You can do it every day at, at any time of the day. We, we won't be doing that, um, and but partly because actually when you can buy and sell things all day, every day and do derivatives and stuff, that's what leads to the volatility on the stock market. Exactly what we don't have. Yeah. So the... the Anybody buying or selling shares in the fund will only be able to do so at the value of the properties in the fund, not above that, not below that, at the value. And there may be a little bit of a, a spread between the buy and the sell, but, but, but tied to the values of the properties. Not, it's not going to be something that starts looking like the share market. That's not what people want. So when we've, when we've explained to our landlords, you know, what this is, uh, a number of them came back to us, you know, your customer always tells you what your product really is. And they say, basically... So it's kind of like a super fund, but for houses. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I guess that's right. That's that's actually not a bad description. So, yeah, so that that's how it works. I'm pretty sure there'll probably be a lot of other questions that people want to ask, but for me, I probably want to ask, what are some of the potential risks? Have you also looked into that and have any questions like that? So to give you a sense on this, um, there have been shared equity um, products and structures in the world, in Australia and overseas, for about twenty years. So, whilst this may sound like a new idea, it's actually been around for some time. We're not we're not splitting the atom in new ways, okay? And so, this structure works. It's been proven to work in plenty of different environments. There's actually a very large shared equity fund in Australia that's been buying shares of quality family homes for eighteen years. It's it's now got shares. It's had shares in 6,000 family homes. It's got a billion dollars in it. It's made 9.8% per annum returns with no bank gearing at all, by the way. So um, it's just a different form of shared equity. That's been for older folks who want to stay in their home but are short of money and so they sell a share of their home and stay in the home, right? So, so we actually use the same lawyers and the same structure of that proven mechanism that's been around for 18 years that that, that billion-dollar investment in all those homes is owned by Bendigo Bank, right? It's called HomeSafe. And so we looked at that and said, well, let's do something like that and learn from, you know, what's already worked and already bought shares of good family homes and has consistently delivered good investment returns, but let's just do it in a different way with young home buyers, where we also get to participate in the benefit of making money on the bank's money. Yeah. As young home buyers do. So it's a little slight slight difference, but the whole model is very similar. Because my next question I was going to ask you is why why not just invest into the the home safe program instead of going setting this whole thing, whole thing up? But you've got a slight <laughs> the returns in this will be higher because the home buyers are making money on the bank's money, whereas the older homeowners all own their homes outright. So 
Um, so the returns will be higher when doing it with early stage home buyers. But otherwise, it's the same mechanism. They tend to, early stage home owners also tend to have shorter tenure in the home. So the money comes back quicker. But yeah, that's great. So Evan, what, what's the next stage, I guess, if people are wanting to find out or investors want to find out more about it? Like- they can go to the longview.com.au website and you can go to the funds management part of our business. Um, and also, but there'll be many uh, on, on this podcast either themselves or their children, who might also want to get the banker mum and dad from us, right? So they should also go. And so the the, the offering to the customer is called Buying Boost. So um, some folks may, them or their friends or family or their kids may need some help buying their home. And so we can do that. And others will be looking to invest in being the banker mum and dad for, for, for folks to buy their home. So I, I should say, and this is very important, at this stage, all of this, we've spent three and a half years building this platform. We've really, you know, um, done all of the detailed work, all of the detailed legal work, the tax work. There's a 70-page investor memorandum that goes through who the investment committee is, who the independent trustee is, who the auditors are. This is all done, you know, real investment grade, uh, like like any proper managed investment sort of fund is. Um and um, and so that's all outlined in the uh, in the investor memorandum. So people can go through that in detail. That's all done under an Australian Financial Services license. Um, but currently, it's only open to people who are uh, designated by ASIC to be what's called sophisticated investors. And you and many of your audience will be familiar with this. Anyone can ask their accountant to either give them a certificate to say they are or they aren't sophisticated investors. The test is principally whether there's a household income above 250000 a year or net assets, including the family home, of above $2.5 million. So in our experience, about half of our landlords um, can get a sophisticated investor certificate from their accountants and probably the other half can't. We will, I think, in time, probably not too far away, also be able to offer uh, the fund to to other investors, um, but but not as yet. So, um, but... Yeah, people can learn more about it uh, at our website uh, and then, then they get in touch and, and we take them through how it works, answer their questions. Their financial advisor or their accountant or their, their wealth manager often has questions and we just take them through that. And then, you know, the minimum investment's $150,000. Um, and so, again, now you can invest in quality family homes but do so with a smaller amount. So... When I originally started talking to landlords about this, I was saying, you should sell that rubbish property and, and buy into the fund. And they're sort of like, well, steady on, cowboy. I might do that one day, but not today. But what's your minimum? I'd say 150. And they go, all right, well, I'll put 150 in. And if this works, then, yeah, I, I might sell that other one later. I'm like, that's fine. So um, so we're finding what we're finding is a lot of people are wanting to See if this is as good as it sounds, and if it is, then I'm sure over time they'll end up investing, you know, more and more into the fund, and 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 in some cases less into the hard work of being a landlord. And I totally understand that side of things as well. I guess what I want to just point out to the audience out there: we're not giving any financial advice. This is basically, you know, targeted towards wholesale and sophisticated investors. So obviously, you need to go out and seek financial advice and legal advice from your own personal situation. But um, yeah, it is a very great opportunity for people interested to have a look, and it's something that I, you know, I personally understand, and might be something that I'd be looking into as well personally as well. So, it's interesting to to hear so many amazing opportunities to be able to help 
people out there because, as you know, the housing crisis is a bit of a huge, huge problem. And, you know, just to try and get kids into the market or future generations, there's no really any other way to look at it unless you're the bank of mum and dad. It's very gratifying for us on the buy side with, with the buying clients. You know, our, our first clients, so we've started buying these homes with, it, with our clients. Our first clients were an Indian migrant professional family. He's an IT uh, consultant. She's a corporate marketer living in a little tiny two-bedroom apartment in Box Hill South, saving every penny to help them and their two tween-age girls. And they literally used to look across the road and say, one day we're going to buy that home. And that home came on the market. And they'd saved a pile of money, right? I mean, they'd saved 260 grand in five years. Like They're really hard-working, hard-saving people. They needed another 130 to be able to get that home. Wow. And so we said, well, that's a good home. That's sitting on 598 square metres of high-quality dirt. It's a short walk from Lavenham Station. That's going to double in value all day long. We're happy to be a co-investor in that asset. We gave them the extra 130 and they bought the home. You, you know, so it's, it's really exciting to be part of that. But as I say, we literally could have been a mum and dad landlord and bought that home. And for the exact same home, we would have made less financial return by definition, because of the difference in structure, than by co-investing with the owner, and we would have had all the challenges of being the landlord. It's a smart strategy to look at. Well, Evan, I want to say a big, big thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. It's been amazing to be able to hear, you know, things are going really well in, in terms of the fund and also for Longview. I really, really congratulate on the success there, and thank you so much for being able to manage that many properties. <laughs> it's, you know, it's a, it's a great pleasure to be able to hear. It's been eight years of hard work, but it's starting to pay off now, and. Uh, we really appreciate it. So thanks for your interest and uh, look forward to talking to you again. We'll give you an update uh, perhaps in a while and uh, we'll tell you about all the homes we've helped help buy at that stage and, and how our investors do. Thank you to Evan Thornley, our guest on this special episode of Property Investory. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.